Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Society of Fellows in Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Catelyn Gillespie's book, Boudicca, Warrior Woman of Roman Britain. First, I'll bring you the comments Professor of Classics at Hunter College, Ronnie Ancona, made about Catelyn's book at the panel, and then we'll hear Catelyn speaking about her book. Uh, it is a pleasure to be here today to celebrate Catelyn, and am I right still with Cat? Okay, <laughs> Catelyn Gillespie's newly published volume on Boudicca in the Women in Antiquity series from Oxford University Press. Uh, Since I am the Women in Antiquity series co-editor with Sarah Pomeroy, I thought I would use my time today on this panel to give you a bit of background on the series as a whole and also on Catelyn's place in it. The Women in Antiquity series began over a decade ago under the name Women of the Ancient World and was published by Routledge. If you have seen the Routledge volumes, they have uniform blue for hardback and gray for paperback covers. After a few years, due to some changes at Routledge, we needed to find a new publisher to take over the series. We approached Stefan Franca at the New York office of Oxford University Press, who was our first choice, I should say, and fortunately for us, he was delighted to take it out for It took on a new name at that point, Women in Antiquity, and a new look as well. The brightly colored and engaging covers have given us a much more attractive outside look. Our collegial and easy working relationship with Stefan, our editor, has allowed the series to grow tremendously in size and to attract an outstanding group of authors. Thus, along with the newer look, we are proud to have a stellar group of author-scholars writing about a wide range of very engaging women from classical antiquity and beyond who make the insides of the books at least as exciting as we had imagined when beginning the series. Women in Antiquity is not now a new area of study, although it certainly was a few decades ago. Sarah Pomeroy's groundbreaking book, Goddesses, Whores, Wives, and Slaves, 1975, which developed from a set of lectures for an undergraduate course at Hunter College, helped to inaugurate or rekindle in new fashion a new research area. And this research, in turn, has led to colleges adopting courses on women in classical antiquity. Today, they are a standard feature on many college campuses. The sentence that begins the introduction to Pomeroy's Goddesses book, and I'll read that for you. This book was conceived when I asked myself what women were doing while men were active in all the areas traditionally emphasized by classical scholars. is still a relevant one today, and in many ways drives our book series, Women in Antiquity. As the series description states, This book series provides compact and accessible introductions to the life and historical times of women from the ancient world. Approaching ancient history and culture broadly, the series selects figures from the earliest of times to late antiquity. These books are meant for scholars and students, but also for the general interested reader. 
To that end, we have solicited proposals from outstanding scholars who know how to and are interested in writing for a non-scholarly audience as well as for their fellow scholars. We are always looking for the best author for all of our books. Who that might be depends upon the topic and also depends upon the direction we see for the series at a given moment. We are always looking for a good fit of scholar and topic. Both are important. A scholar who cannot write in an accessible style will not be of interest, even if highly qualified in other regards. A terrific author who wants to cover a topic we do not think will work for the series will also not be of interest. At the beginning, it was especially important to us in terms of building the credibility of the series to have authors who would bring significant name recognition to their books, scholars with widely established reputations. Uh, to use just one example, Elaine Fantham, who during her lifetime was about as widely published as a scholar can get, helped to inaugurate the series from Routledge with her Julia, uh, Julia Augusti, The Emperor's Daughter. While we still aim to have the best scholars as our authors, we've been interested in further widening our pool of authors, both internationally and in terms of career stage, where possible. From the start, we had scholars from both the US and the UK among our authors. Now under contract, we have two scholars from Australia and another from Germany. Our hope is that this international expansion will widen awareness about the series among scholars, students, and the general public. While we moved a while ago to include more mid-level career authors, rather than exclusively senior ones, Kathleen has the distinct honor of being the first series author for whom this is a first book. And I find this really exciting. <laughs> we were aware when we approached Kat that as a very junior member of the profession, she had not yet published a book. In fact, we knew from her CV that she had another book in progress. Didn't know if I told you that. <laughs> and that we would not keep her from accepting our offer. I hope that that would not keep her from accepting our offer, and it did not. As all who have authored books know, the proposal and review process for a book can be fairly arduous. Even the best-known scholars are often required to explain further or defend what are, they are doing in their proposals when presented with peer-reviewed reports. I must say that it was a pleasure to watch Kat perform so successfully at each step of the publication process, especially since she was a novice in this area compared to our early series authors. I point out Kaplan's junior status as both a point of pride for the series, but also as a sign to junior scholars in the field that their first scholarly steps do not go unnoticed and that their employment status outside of tenure-track jobs does not necessarily provide an impediment to being sought after to do significant scholarly work. At the time we approached Kaplan, she was in an NTT, non-tenure-track position at Temple University, and currently she is in a non-continuing lecturer position at Columbia. Of course, we hope that our authors will benefit from writing in our series, 
And if that can help them towards increasingly better jobs, we are delighted. And, as we know, <laughs> we have something to celebrate in that department as well. Uh, I should add that articles at the start of one's career can be influential. It was when I read Kaplan's excellent 2015 piece on Boudicca in Classical World that I realized she might be the Boudicca author we had been searching for for a while. Based on that promising article and her very strong academic and scholarly preparation, we decided to approach her and were delighted when she accepted our invitation. I should add that Kat kept to her publication schedule admirably, that's not always the case. Uh, and having the book already in hand now in early spring 2018 is really quite impressive. Boudicca is like several of the other figures we cover in the series in that she does not easily present material for a biography. Like the other authors in the series, Kaplan uh, has built her particular biography not only on the available specific source material, but also through developing a wider historical, social, and geographical context for her subject. This need for a somewhat expanded notion of what the genre of biography can be has presented our authors with their biggest challenges and, I gather, their biggest satisfactions. If you know of women from antiquity you think we should cover but have not, don't hesitate to get in touch with me. We have no endpoint in mind for the series and look forward to covering even more women in antiquity in a scholarly yet accessible fashion. Thank you. Now, we'll hear Catelyn speaking about and reading a portion from her book. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you to Gareth for that introduction. Thank you to Ryan for your comments. Thank you to the Hyman Center, of course, for uh, offering to host this event, and to my fellow panelists and all of you all for being here. It uh, is my task, I guess, uh, to provide a few words of introduction to this project and uh, perhaps do a little bit of reading from the book itself to get further conversation started. I wanted to frame my remarks today about or around the concept of motivation. And first, what motivates Boudicca to lead the largest revolts the Romans had encountered up to that point in the history of what we might regard as a, a fairly successful <laughs> imperial expansion. What motivates ancient historians to include her in their works? Not only that, but to give her some of the most memorable images and speeches in those works. And third, what motivates us, a modern audience, to want to study her? How does this type of study, one that concerns a non-Roman woman, warrior, queen, living on the edges of the world, to force us to confront our assumptions or stereotypes about the ancient world and why this type of confrontation is relevant and necessary for us as scholars today. I guess I want to start with my motivation, which is the easiest part, and maybe we'll get to Boudicca and some of the questions she invites from us as modern readers. 
How I came to the project is fairly simple. I was introduced to Boudicca in graduate school at an event that our graduate students will be familiar with, the Corridor Latin Festival, uh, which is happening tomorrow, uh, in which students from the University of Pennsylvania, NYU, Rutgers, Columbia, and Princeton all get together for a day and geek out over a text that is perhaps not uh, as commonly read as others. That year, we read Tacitus' Agricola, and my job as a junior graduate student was to talk about Boudicca and her place in the text for two whole minutes, which can be terrifying as a graduate student. But that led to, uh, that introduction to Boudicca led to a conference paper, a series of conference papers, uh, the article that Ronnie talked about, which has now become this book, part of this series. And what motivated me, or what uh, fascinated me initially about Boudicca is her uniqueness in many ways. First, she's a woman from Roman Britain. In the first century CE, who we know about through two Roman authors, neither of whom witnessed any of the events that they discuss. Part of the problem with her is one of evidence and historical reality, like many of the women in this series. Did Boudicca do the, sh the things she did, according to Tacitus and Dio, or her motivations, those that these authors attribute to her? <laughs> what is her historical liter uh, reality or literary purpose, and what has been the lasting impact of her rebellion, both in scholarship and other media. I chose to address these kinds of issues through dividing my approach into first the study of the archeology span and material culture of Southeast Britain in the first century CE, from which we get a general sense of the, life that, of the lifestyle the Buddha would have lived and the challenges her people would have faced when the Romans arrived. And then secondly, through taking a comparative biographical approach, which I'll uh, give you an example of in a minute. I attempted to evaluate Boudicca and her literary role in relationship with the goal of historiography to present readers with role models, both those to follow and those to avoid. So the question might be less about the actual historical Boudicca and more about how depictions of this rebel a leader, a queen, are thematically connected to other women and revolutionaries, how she might be good for a reader of Roman history to think with. And I'll give you two examples. First, in Tastus' biography of his father-in-law, Agricola, Tastus discusses the rebellion that occurred 17 years before his governorship in Britain. And he explains Boudicca's leadership parenthetically, for they don't consider sex in their attribution of power. Secondly, Cassius Dio gives Boudicca a lengthy speech in his history in which she discusses anti-models of power, women whose leadership limited the freedom of their people. His Boudicca, again, parenthetically, says, we learned these things from the Romans. And it was these two parentheticals that led me to consider the various ideologies of gender and power, leadership and libertas that are so central to her narrative. I divided the book into broad, thematically organized chapters in order to question the impact of Boudicca on the history of Roman Britain and attempt to connect the threads by which she becomes part of a tapestry woven by other women, other rebels. In order to talk about Boudicca's motivation, perhaps, I wanted to read just a page from the third chapter of the work, uh, which discusses Tacitus' Boudicca and focuses on her position as a mother. 
the mother speaks. Boudicca is the only individual Briton who speaks in our ancient sources on the revolt and embodies the concerns of her council of Britons. She becomes the voice of the people, a remarkable unifier who exemplifies the lifestyle and freedom for which she fights. As such, she becomes comparable to a synecdochic hero of epic, defined by Philip Hardy as, quote, the individual who stands for the totality of his people, present and future, part for whole, end quote. Unlike such heroes, Boudicca's strength is in her words. She has no aristeia or deeds of excellence on a battlefield. Rather, she is one woman who represents many. Her speech clarifies what this representation entails. In Tacitus' annals, Boudicca travels among her gathered army and exhorts them to strive for victory before the final battle, uniting them through their common desire for freedom from any master. She denounces the negative impact of the Romans and proclaims the need for the Britons to join together as never before. She capitalizes on the symbolic potential of her body and the bodies of her daughters, utilizing a rhetoric that aligns a loss of chastity with a loss of freedom. The first half of her speech focuses on this rhetoric. Boudicca, riding in her chariot, her daughters before her, approached each tribe, declaring it is customary for Britons to fight under the leadership of a woman, but at this moment, I am not acting as a woman born of great ancestors, seeking a kingdom and wealth. Instead, I am one woman from a crowd seeking to avenge lost freedom, a body weakened by beating, the violated chastity of my daughters. Roman lusts are so advanced, they leave no bodies, not even old age or maidenhood, undefiled. In the opening of her speech, Boudicca displays both Roman and non-Roman, feminine and masculine traits, as she justifies her leadership position. She displays her daughters visibly demonstrating the immorality of the Romans through a specific example, while emphasizing the universality of the Romans' failures. Eric Adler characterizes her as a slightly idealized Roman woman. She presents her daughters as a, quote, wronged Roman matron. But she also claims a role as the avenger of her daughters and their lost chastity, a role that is reserved for men. She uses this violation as authorization for her uprising. In order uh, to consider Boudicca's mo motivations or to consider why they are worth thinking about is because they're so universal. An attack on family, on land, on freedom, which becomes a call to arms. It's not a simple story, nor one in which Boudicca is without any faults in her ability to lead or in the execution of her plan. As a spoiler, she does lose in the end. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, the sheer extent of her afterlife, literature, art, music, movies, TV, uh, and a rather punkish uh, British band, <laughs> suggests she has more to say. I hope to have prompted some questions and comments um, in this brief time. The rest of the panel will introduce you to some of the takeaways from the project, hopefully giving insight into why this woman is, was, and of course continues to be worth investigating. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast celebrating Catelyn Gillespie's Boudicca, Warrior Woman of Roman Britain. I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Joe Howley's Aulus Skellius and Roman reading culture, text, presence, and imperial knowledge in the Noctis Atticae.
From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Ann Levitsky. 